Hi, everybody. Welcome to the December 13th, 2019 edition of Colorado Inside Out. I'm your host, Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you very much for joining us. Let's get a quick take on the effort underway to recall the mayor of Idaho Springs, Michael Hillman. Citizens upset with growth in the city are following the recall models from towns like Estes Park, which we should note had failed. So you, know, you take your models where you can. Patty Cahoon from Westward, uh, we don't know the results yet. We haven't heard about the count, if they've, they've had enough. The threshold in a place like Idaho Springs is pretty low. But uh, recall fever, are you surprised it's spread to Idaho Springs? No, because if you've tried to drive past Idaho Springs over the last three years during all the I-70 construction there, you can only imagine how frustrating it's been for both people who rely on the tourist and people coming off I-70 and the people even just trying to get to their homes or away from their homes. So it's not a surprise. What we have to remember, though, is how close elections are, not just in little towns where you need only 77 signatures to have a recall, ballot signatures, but in Aurora, a far larger city where you have a mayor who was elected by just over 200 votes. So I would say our political groups are very divided right now. David Copel from the Independence Institute and DU Law School. Uh, recall fever seemed to uh, catch in 2013, and those were effective with some of the legislatures. But from there, the record of recall success has been pretty minor. How long does it take for a set of failures for recall fever to finally break? Oh, you should ask uh, former Representative Rochelle Galindo about that one. Um, sometimes things succeed even without going to the ballot. Um, in this one, I, I don't think it's, I mean, as Patty says, I-70 around Idaho Springs has had a lot of problems, but I don't think the voters there blame local government at all. That, that's the department, it's the state uh, Department of Transportation's uh, problem. The, within Idaho Springs, the complaints are sort of on, on two tracks. One is he's just a guy who has delegated too much to the staff who the, the permanent staff who don't listen and go ahead and make decisions without citizen input. And then there's also dissatisfaction with some of the decisions uh, that even have been made with citizen input, uh, including selling the uh, football field for the, the gold diggers, the, the local school team. Uh, or, and, diggers. or diggers. Or, or diggers, thank you. Uh, right, diggers the, uh, whole different yeah, school. Gold, gold diggers <laughs> is a whole, whole other issue. Um, and... Um, uh, so the uh, selling the ore diggers field to to build housing, and some people think that's great to have more more apartments and more densification, and others don't. So that that's the more substantive uh, issue out there. Eric Sonderman, uh, political analyst and a weekly columnist with Colorado Politics. Uh, I realize that citizens across Colorado are chafing at growth, but it's not as if I would expect any elected official to come out and, and be pro stagnation or pro-status quo. So the, the people are kind of in a tough pickle here. Uh, is, is this more about recall fever? Is this more about people just being angry that things are growing too fast? I think it's probably more the latter. Uh, I'm not sure the average person in Iowa Springs pays attention to recalls in other parts of the state. They just know what they know locally. To, uh, to David's point, I'm not sure the issue is I-70, but the main street, I, I want to say it's called Minor Street, yes. the main drag through Idaho Springs has been ripped up for years after year as it's been expanded, traffic's been rerouted, et cetera. So I think that is probably the local thing uh, that is driving that, driving this Given that they only need 77 valid signatures to proceed, it's curious to me of how hard is it to count to 77. You either have it or you don't, and I'm surprised, given that yesterday was the deadline, that we don't know whether this is proceeding or not. Um, for the organizers' sake, let's hope they have a better outcome than the shenanigans and debacle 
that was the, the partisan legislative recalls and the polis recall that never went anywhere over the last year. It feels like you'd only need the first floor of Bojo's for 77 signatures, but who knows. Uh, Natasha Gardner, Articles Editor 5280, uh, wrap it up for us. Uh, are we still in the midst of recall fever? Are we going to see more things like this? I think so, but as we do that, I think people should look at the prospect of, you know, we have terms for a reason. Do we really want to be in election season on an annual basis, on an every decision sort of basis? And I think that's what people are going to start looking at. You know, Idaho Springs and these conversations that we're having in mountain towns, I find fascinating because we've been dealing with questions of growth in the metro area, and, and certainly the mountains have not been immune to it, but it seems to be affecting them in a different way. Tourism has always been a part of their survival. These mountain towns probably know more about booms and busts than Denver does, but this is another boom that's hitting them and how they react to it and what kind of tourism they're going to bring in. You know, you have uh, different mountain towns, like the Vales and the Aspens of the world that, that handle it a, a little bit differently, but Idaho Springs has just been sort of, you know, that sleepy town, I think, was something that was used, a moniker that was used for it this week. Uh, what do they want to become and how are they going to react to this sort of tsunami of people who relentless, relentlessly move across I-70 every day, every hour? So I think Idaho Springs is going to have a lot of um, time to talk about it and maybe they want to talk to some of those residents um, from, say, the Five Points neighborhood where we're taping right now who've been <laughs> infected by it and have a few lessons learned. Uh, well said, well said. This week, Denver City Council members introduced proposals to reduce the power of the mayor. Among the considerations are new rules where the council would approve all the directors of the city departments as well as the city attorney. Currently, these positions are mayoral appointment only. Uh, Patty, the, the strong mayor model, which has nothing to do with any particular mayor, it's just a civic model term, um, has been the case in Denver for a long time. Uh, is Why now? And is it about certain appointees? Is this about Hancock? What's this about? Well, why now? It's about Hancock and also some of the people who were just elected to city council, Candy C. DeBaca in particular, who's going to lead the charge for the sh an elected sheriff's office, which I'm sure David will want to address. But she's definitely in favor of that. And that has been an appointee by the mayor and in Hancock's case, a very disappointing appointee with Patrick Furman. And now it seems to be spreading like recall fever to maybe other departments. There's even been an idea floated, not just for the city attorney to have to be vetted and approved by city council, but elected, which is kind of a wacky one because the city attorney really does need to represent the city, not the citizens of the city who might be suing the city at any point. So that's one that really doesn't work. But I think more oversight of cabinet level appointees isn't a bad idea. I don't see this council going for giving themselves the vote of approval over those cabinet members. I do think they could approve the storyteller. Well, I'll, there are so many mayoral appointees right now that you kind of wonder why we have them. And I would like to see a vote on the storyteller. Uh, David, can minor adjustments be made to instead of just dumping the strong mayor model? Or is it kind of an all-or-nothing approach that if, if they want any sort of change, being the council? No, I, I don't think it's all-or-nothing. And the, the, the nothing side of that is the model some other places have where the city is actually run by a city manager who's just hired and not elected by the people. And, you know, a boulder like that, for example, where the mayor is, not, is, is more of an honorific title. The city council has a lot of the power, but really the, the city manager has the most. But without going... To that extreme, you can certainly move away from how hyper-concentrated power in Denver is, is in the mayor. And even though I would 
on the whole, trust Mayor Hancock rather than Candy C. DeBaca uh, to make wise appointments. I, I think it, it, it does make sense to uh, be more like the U.S. or Colorado, where, where there's not such a hyper-concentration of power uh, in the executive. Eric, I get the point of whether it be critics or supporters about saying changing from a stronger model to having the uh, uh, city council make these decisions. But it's not as if city council appointed directors would suddenly be magically more qualified or do better than mayoral appointments. Uh, so I don't know if the general, if the average Denver voter would trust the council more than they trust the mayor. An appointment's an appointment. But perhaps I'm wrong. Do you think there's more trust among voters that if there's more people involved in these kind of appointments? Well, maybe I'm wrong here, but I don't think the proposal is for city council to make the appointments. I think it's for city council to, quote, advise and consent Great. like the U.S. Senate does. Or, uh, and, and that's the case at the state of Colorado level where you have, relatively constitutionally speaking, a weak governor system. Uh, but the Senate has to confirm all the major cabinet-level appointments, even with President Trump and his imperiousness, et cetera. His cabinet-level appointments have to be confirmed by the U.S. Senate. So I don't think it is necessarily a bad idea to have that advice and consent function by city council. The mayor still gets to make the appointments. They still work for the mayor. The mayor can still terminate him, terminate that person at the mayor's uh, discretion. But city council gets to uh, approve or not approve the replacement. This will, if it goes forward, and it sounds to me like it will go forward, it needs to go to the ballot because it's going to be a charter change. I'm going to be curious whether Hancock really fights this. Does this become a battle royale between the Hancock forces and the new council, Cita Baca, Amanda Sawyer, Amanda Sandoval, at all, at all forces? Or, um, or, or do they figure out a way to resolve this internally? I don't think this is the last time we're going to be talking about this issue. Natasha, we know from our CIO Time Machine shows, available at uh, cpt12.org right now for watching, that the city of Denver has played with the charter before. Uh, mm -hmm. Strong mayor, weak mayor, all different kinds of systems. Do you think we're bound to be messing with the charter again? Yes. I mean, that's the whole point of this committee is they're looking at everything. And some of them are big headline-making changes, and some of them are going to be little tinkering things that need to be done to make the city run better. I mean, I, I don't think that anyone has looked at our, our city charter and said that that's it. That's a perfect document. We're never going to touch it again. It needs to be fixed. So that's part of what the committee is going through. I think it's interesting, too, because a lot of these conversations focus on the strong mayor aspect of this all. And just to flip the, the, the sort of discussion a little bit, if you think of it more of the city council, like what their role is in the city, and I think we're seeing a transformation of that, certainly in the municipal election. But in recent years, I think there's been a lot of illumination on what the city council is actually able to do. And I, frankly, I think there's a lot of surprise of like, oh, they aren't involved in that. Oh, they can't do that. Okay, they get this stop sign is, is going to be a monumental effort to get added to this neighborhood. So, I mean, if you think about it, if you were a city council person and you're running for election and you're being held accountable for, by the voters for many decisions that you have no say over, I could understand why people who are both running for city council or currently on city council or just anyone who's interested in city council could look at it and say, maybe, maybe I don't want to. Maybe I want to have a little bit of control over my future and the work that I'm doing for my constituents. So I think that, yes, this is about the strong mayor, but it's also about these, these city council people who are representing neighborhoods and are saying, well, we can't do that. Why not? So more conversation for this to come, um, and then certainly the voters will be able to weigh in on it. Should be fun to watch. 
The impeachment process has arrived at the House Judiciary Committee, prominently featuring two of Colorado congressmen. Democrat Joe Neguse has favored impeachment since before he was sworn into office and has been a big part of national coverage. On the other side of the aisle, Republican Ken Buck has asserted that President Trump's refusal to comply with congressional subpoenas does not constitute obstruction of Congress. David, without getting into the details of the impeachment hearings, because there's only 18 other channels that are going to get into that minutia, what do you think about Buck and Neguse and how they've handled for lack of a better term, they're 15 minutes of fame. Well, and the goose is symptomatic of why uh, impeachment is not really catching on with the general public and has, at this point, zero chance uh, in the Senate because he's like a juror who walks into the courthouse and says, I vote to convict. And Well, you're not on a panel yet, and you don't even know what the guy's been charged with. Yeah, yeah, but I don't like him, and I'm, you, you find the crime, I'll vote to convict. And that, that's not serious, and so much of how the Democrats have mishandled that has been in, in, in that kind of line. But on the substance of obstruction of Congress, that was something that uh, when P- President Nixon partially refused, refu- complied with some congressional subpoenas, and then at some point stopped and began what was called stonewalling. The House Judiciary voted, that was Article 3 of the Articles of Impeachment Against Him, which passed 21 to 17. Uh, President Trump's conduct has been much more egregious because he simply said, no cooperation, no nothing, complete stonewalling. That is uh, the opposite of what Prevent, it's preventing Congress from doing its job. Parliament was originally created not so much to pass legislation as it was to keep an eye on the executive, and they need to be able to do investigations. I understand you can have good faith objections about you know, the national security, executive privilege, the subpoena goes too far, but that's not the case here with a 100% stonewall. And if he gets away with it, it will set a precedent for future presidents who abuse their power uh, to likewise stonewall, and that's a terrible precedent and a danger uh, to the republic. So I think uh, Article 2 of, of the impeachment, uh, I think the goose was right uh, to vote for that. Uh, Eric, as we look at uh, Ken Buck, he is chair of the Colorado Republican Party and making a lot of statements on a national stage. In those comments, is he signing any checks that Colorado Republican candidates are going to need to cash next fall? Well, I think both parties are signing checks right now that will um, come due next fall. Uh, Ken Buck is not alone. My read on both Ken Buck and Jonah Goose is they're playing to type. They have high profiles here as members of the Judiciary Committee. They've had plenty of airtime uh, over the last handful of days, but neither one is stepping out. Neither one is is breaking pattern or saying anything that is uh, against their their party's perceived uh, interests here. I, I agree with David's second half of David's formulation vis-a-vis Article 2 and the Congress's legitimate investigative, investigative function, oversight function, even the power of impeachment, which the founders debated at substantial length, and that is a congressional uh, function. The criticism of Jonah Goose for prejudging the case, I mean, there's certainly plenty of Democrats, there are people on both sides who have prejudged this case, Lord knows. But Jonah Goose is not a juror here. As a member of the House, he is more akin to a prosecutor. The question is, do you bring charges? The ones who are prejudging the case are the U.S. senators who have gone on record either yay or nay before the case ever gets to the Senate. The most egregious example being last night with Mitch McConnell, the Senate Republican leader, where he talked about how 
his defense and his strategy will be done in absolute lockstep with the White House. Now, where is the impartiality of that? Yes, this is going to probably go to nowhere. Uh, and as we have a party line vote in the Senate House Judiciary Committee, it will probably continue to be a party line function. That doesn't mean it's still not important. Final thought. As I look back at the four impeachments in this nation's history, I guess Nixon technically wasn't because he resigned a few days before, but for sake of argument, it was. They have all occurred during times of high, high partisan rancor and cultural rancor, and that is what is going on now, and this is a symptom of that. Natasha, you look back at the, some of the political careers with both Ken Buck and Joe Nagoose, and they have a seemingly meteoric rise lately. Ken Buck's a guy who uh, had a career, then he uh, ran for U.S. Senate. That failed. Uh, you have Joe Nagoose, who in 2000, I think it was uh, 18, excuse me, 16, uh, runs for Secretary of State here in Colorado against Wayne Williams. Makes, I, I, among other people, said, gosh, this is a guy who refused to go negative, was always a nice guy in debates. Wayne Williams defeats him. Now they're both on a pretty uh, big stage, pretty big partisan stage. Uh, what do you make of their current state, especially from what we've seen over the last few years of both of them? Well, I think it says something about politics in Colorado right now, which is there are a lot of interested people who are doing, um, making, making the national stage. And that's, um, that's part of what their job is right now. I think that it's, it's probably a stage neither of them wants to be on. And ultimately, I think that's maybe the question is with all these hearings, is this, is this a place where any of them want to be having a discussion right now? Would we prefer not to be in a situation where these discussions are even even happening? And I think I think that's a bigger question for the country to sort of um, reckon or, or deal with right now. What I find interesting for both of those two, and actually any Colorado candidate right now, is what impact this is going to have on the 2020 election. Because if you go back a few months, the Democrats were saying we're not going to do this. When Pelosi was saying, we're not heading down this path. And then a conversation happened, a telephone call, and everything changed. And and again, I'm not sure that um, anyone knows yet what that impact is going to be on the 2020 election, but I think everyone is trying to play it as safe as possible in a moment of deep, um, I, I think we could call it crisis for the country, to, to anticipate what might happen in a few months. And that's dangerous territory for everyone involved. So, I mean, careful times, like kudos to the reporters who are really working on this issue on a day-to-day -day basis, and kudos to the public who are watching and um, sometimes record, record numbers to, to sort of keep on top of what, what's, what change is happening. Patty, between Buck and Goose, do you think collectively they represent a great percentage of Colorado, or when you look at Colorado citizens as a whole, are we uh, a little bit more on the sidelines trying to still figure it out? I would say most Coloradans are still trying to figure it out or being, waiting to be told what they should figure out. Um, the, Ken Buck is in a really interesting position because he is also head of the Colorado Republicans. So whatever he does is going to have some kind of impact on a party that is severely wounded in this state, judging from their results in other recent elections. So that's interesting. I saw on Monday that he watched most of the debate, most of the discussion in his office, and who can blame him? Because it has got to be pretty deadening just watching everyone grandstand through their questions. And that reminded me of one thing I meant to bring up. Nagus, who did a big round of TV appearances over the weekend, and he certainly got some my, mileage out of this. In one of the obscure references that's usually David's job, he quizzed the only academic who talked on behalf of, uh, on behalf of the Republicans, Jonathan Turley, who is the Rocky Flats grand jury um, 
attorney who represented the Rocky Flats grand jurors when they wanted to speak about what Justice Department had done to them, and they've never been allowed to. Wow, and that's currently part of Joe Nagusa's district, right? Exactly. Small world, brothers. Good, a good connection there, uh, Patty. Let's get a short take on this last one. This week, the Aurora Police Department released more documents regarding an incident that happened in March where an officer was found passed out drunk in uniform in his patrol car in the middle of the street. The officer has not been charged with a DUI and is still in the job. The responding officer was the current interim police chief, Paul O'Keefe. Uh, Eric, your quick take on this. Uh, Aurora seems to be in a tough position here, but are they making the right call? I can't imagine they're making the right call. I keep uh, wondering, what does it take to get fired, particularly from the public sector? We've seen other cases of this around Denver and in other municipalities. What does it take to get fired? This gentleman, this police officer, is lucky to be alive. He had a blood alcohol, I believe, of 0.45. That is, you know, past death in, 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 in many, many cases. Um, I'll go back. What do you have to do to lose your job? Uh, apparently, Aurora said if he does it again, which uh, I guess we've set a parameter. But, uh, Natasha, you've covered a lot of police uh, mm -hmm. stories as a writer. When you see something like this, is it saying a lot, not just about Aurora, but there's other police officers calling Aurora out saying, wait, this is a besmirch on all of us. What do you yeah, think? Yeah, it's a difficult situation, I think, for everyone involved, obviously, safety. But then the image that this presents of other police officers and, and, and the impact that that can have on their job. I mean, here's my question, I think, what a lot of people will be asking of the Aurora Police Department, is this how you would have treated someone who was not in uniform? Is this how a civilian is treated? And unless they have a good answer for that, I think that they're going to have to uh, sort of come up with more reasons why this, this action was, in this case, not taken. Because the problem is they took the blood alcohol at the hospital, but that was not related to a DUI investigation. So th that's my question. And the average Aurora person, if they're in a car passed out with a weapon, is it, are they not investigated for a DUI? Patty, what do you think? Is Aurora going to want to rethink their situation here? Well, I think they're going to be rethinking the possibility of O'Keefe succeeding to the full staff. Um, they haven't said that he, would, he has a lock on the job, the chief's job, when the chief leaves at the end of the year. But there is just no way this is right. There is no way that an officer should go find – I guess he was even on the job. He'd just gone home for lunch and maybe – a couple bottles of vodka if he, he rated higher than anybody at your party last night covering <laughs> public television. There's yeah. just no way this is acceptable. And for an officer not to say, we have to deal with this, he, he's not prepared to be a leader. David, is Aurora in some tricky legal ground here? Well, the, the officer was uh, demoted uh, and, and also suspended for a period without pay. But th this is the difference between police departments, where the officers are civil servants, versus sheriff office, sheriff's offices, where the employees, the deputies are at-will employees. A sheriff could just fire that person in, in an instant. Uh, in Aurora or Denver, the police officer has various civil service protections. So now that he's been punished to some degree, it it's, I, could be very difficult to go back and, and escalate the punishment. Well, it is time for our very favorite part of the show, Disgrace the Week. As always, Ms. Calhoun, please start us off. The mysterious emissions at Suncor in Commerce City on Wednesday, which were troubling enough that schools went on lockdown or the kids were sent home, we are not yet hearing what it really happened. The state wants to know more. Suncor is offering to give people car washes if all that gray residue on their cars makes concern. You put out a thing for a free car wash. It's it, it's it's not 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 a good sign, especially whatever a cat, what is a catalytic event they said. That's uh, catalytic event for car washes, I guess. <laughs> Apparently, David. 
Let's just remember a few years ago when Attorney General Eric Holder was rightfully held in contempt of Congress for stonewalling an investigation into his cover-up of the Obama administration illegal shipment of guns to Mexico so that Mexicans could be killed, the guns could be found at the scene, and then that would promote gun control in the United States. Holder not only should have been held in contempt of Congress, he should have been impeached for, the, for his obstruction and stonewalling. And the question is how many people, Republicans who voted to hold Holder in contempt are now defending Trump on the same thing, and likewise, how many Democrats who thought Holder's stonewalling was fine are now uh, running around in hysterics about Trump's similar behavior? Looking for consistency in D.C., and they call me an optimist. Uh, that's a good, good point, David. Eric, uh, to David's point, it's two words, situational ethics. <laughs> Very situational here. How about the news this week of the initial settlement or the initial payment from Denver, city of Denver, uh, Denver Airport to the Great Hall Partners, which is mainly the Spanish firm, uh, Ferrovial, $128 million just walked out of Denver's door to this failed project that they're now going to have to resuscitate. I'm starting to wonder if DIA, if the D in DIA stands for debacle, debacle <laughs> International Airport, because that is what this has fast become. Natasha. I, well, that was going to be mine. I mean, it, it appears that breakups are hard, but they're also very expensive. Um, I will go on to it as well, though. The president's treeps, tr tweets about the teenager, um, Greta, who is fighting for climate change, just wholly inappropriate. And I hope it doesn't have a chilling effect on teenagers who are interested in public and civic engagement. Time to say something nice about somebody rather quickly. Patty. Uh, City Councilman Kevin Flynn, one of the very good additions to that council a couple of years ago, who is going to put out a memorandum on why Alden Global Media should sell the Denver Post and let responsible people run it. David. Aurora City Councilman Charlie Richardson, who's looking at legislation to repeal the city's ban on the American Staffordshire Terrier uh, because people think some of those terriers are abused and turned into what are called pit bulls. But that doesn't mean the entire breed is bad. And Richardson would go for much, something much more sensible, which is a non-breed-based uh, uh, laws on aggressive or dangerous dogs. Here, here. Eric. My colleague at this table, David Kopel, who has been a broken record for years on the need for Denver to elect its sheriff, that now is moving forward. And the, I, I get all warm and fuzzy thinking of David Kopel and Candy C. DeBaca making common cause and on the same side of that debate table. It's been the center square of CIO bingo for a long time, so it's, it's nice to see it finally get its due. Natasha. Well, everyone at this table has probably talked about it, and the whole city has talked about it. There was, of course, the debacle with clearing the ice and snow from the recent storm. But the thing I think that went, went miss, missing in that conversation is how many people in the city came up and, and had comments about um, how good we were about shoveling sidewalks. So while the city wasn't so good, the average citizens were very good about making sure that their fellow residents, particularly our community that needs those, those air pathways clear, um, did their part. Yeah. And I want to say something nice about all of you. Uh, we were able to break another record in Colorado Gives Day. Uh, thanks to all of your support. Thank you so much for being a part of that and uh, for uh, chipping in. We appreciate it very much. That is all the time we have for Colorado Inside Out. For, on behalf of everybody here at CPT12, I'm Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you very much for watching. Good night.